Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And thank God it's April. Right? I am so ready for some comedy. Please. We talked about zombies last month and it's time for us to like laugh our ass off. I have been waiting for this month for I feel like a year. Yeah. I think so actually because we put it on the docket around at least a year ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of our favorite horror comedies uh, being Death Becomes Her and of course... Drop Dead Gorgeous, which should be required reading, really. For sure. I know. I'm super excited for this month. I'm excited for this episode. And first up in Horror Comedy Month, we are talking, like Chris said, Death Becomes Her, which is a 1992 American satirical black comedy horror fantasy film directed and produced by Robert Zemeckis with a screenplay by David Kep and Martin Donovan. The score for the film was composed by Alan Silvestri. The film stars Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn as rivals who fight for the affections of the same man, Bruce Willis, and drink a magic potion that promises eternal youth, but causes unpleasant side effects. The film was a pioneer in the use of computer-generated effects and was widely regarded as some of the best work up to that point and beyond. All right, listeners. Now a warning. Now a warning? This is Death Becomes Earth. Don't you know that it's worth every treasure on earth to be young at heart. Some people will go to any length to stay young forever. Is that someone? It's Madeline Ashton. She was a big star in the 60s. I thought she was dead. Oh, madam, you look younger every day. Thank you, Rose. But Madeline Ashton and her old friend, Helen Sharp. I've lost men to her before are about to go too far. A touch of magic. Drink that potion, and you'll never grow even one day older. Bottoms up. No warning. Now a warning? Siempre viva! Live forever! Ernest, I'm in the morgue. They think I'm dead. You are. But you're not. Are you telling me it doesn't hurt when I do this? It doesn't hurt. She's dead! She's dead, Ernest. Now he's dead. He's dead? Ernest is dead? Everybody's dead! You pushed me down the stairs. I'm so sweaty. I don't think it's sweat, honey. I think you're defrosting. Universal Pictures presents Meryl Streep, Bruce Willis, it's a miracle, and Goldie Hawn. Look at me, I'm soaking wet. Death becomes her. I just have to make a telephone call. In 1978, aging has-been actress Madeline Ashton, played by Meryl Streep, stars in a Broadway musical called Songbird. Longtime frenemy and aspiring writer Helen Sharp, played by Goldie Hawn, brings her fiancé, renowned plastic surgeon Ernest Menville, played by Bruce Willis, to see the show. While most of the audience leaves in disgust, Ernest is enchanted by Madeline. The two visit Madeline backstage, where she recognizes Ernest and flirts. Despite Helen's explanation that Madeline has a nasty habit of stealing her men, Ernest breaks off his engagement to marry her. 
Seven years later, Helen is a housebound, obese cat lady with a penchant for eating frosting directly from the can. She's eventually committed and plots revenge against her nemesis. Penchant? <laughs> Seven more years pass, and Madeline and Ernest's marriage is on the rocks, much like Ernest's breakfast cocktails. Madeline is no longer receiving roles, and Ernest is a drunk who's been reduced to performing reconstructive work on corpses. The pair receive an invitation to a lunch party for Helen's new self-help book, Forever Young. Desperate to look her best, Madeline visits a spa where she gets unorthodox skin treatments, but when she's unable to get the work done, the spa owner takes pity on her plight and directs her to Liesel von Rumen, played by Isabella Rossellini, a mysterious woman who specializes in rejuvenation. Madeline dismisses him immediately. At the lunch, Madeline and Ernest are shocked to find Helen has become more beautiful, thin, and youthful than ever. Madeline overhears Helen blaming her for Ernest's current state, and later visits her young lover, only to find that he is hooked up with a woman his own age. Dejected and desperate, Madeline visits Liesel's mansion. Liesel, although very young and attractive, tells Madeline that she's 71 years old. She offers Madeline a potion that promises eternal youth and beauty for a very Streep Price. <laughs> a tonic, a potion, the sordid topic of coin. <laughs> After drinking the potion, Madeline's body returns to its previously youthful form, and Lisa gives her a warning. Now a warning? <laughs> Take care of yourself. She explains that Madeline will need to completely disappear from public life after 10 years to avoid questions. Meanwhile, Helen visits Ernest and seduces him. The two plot to murder Madeline and start a new life together. Madeline returns home and fights with Ernest, who pushes her down the stairs. He immediately calls Helen, and while they figure out next steps, Madeline, with a severely broken neck, rises and confronts Ernest for his actions. Realizing something's very wrong, Ernest drives Madeline to the hospital, where she is pronounced to be the living dead. Ernest views her reanimation as a miracle and performs some cosmetic maintenance on Madeline seeing it as a sign that they're supposed to stay together. Helen arrives ready to bury Madeline's corpse, but is shot by Madeline directly through the stomach with a shotgun. Helen revives and accosts Madeline, despite the gaping hole in her midsection. The two women fight with shovels before apologizing and making up. Ernest prepares to leave both women behind, but is convinced to correct their appearance one last time. Realizing that they will need regular tune-ups, the women knock him out and take him to Liesel's for the potion. There... Ernest refuses to drink after learning that he will be alive forever. He pockets the tonic and flees, only to be cornered on the roof. The two women watch as he drops the potion and plummets into the pool below. 37 years later, Ernest has died after living a very full life, including having six children. At his funeral, Madeline and Helen sit veiled in the back, laughing and causing a scene. Madeline notices a blemish in Helen's spray paint makeup, and the two leave after noticing that Madeline has lost their can of touch-up paint. As they walk down the stairs outside, Helen trips on the lost can and grabs Madeline as she falls. They shatter into pieces. Helen turns her severed head to Madeline and asks if she remembers where she parked the car. The end. <laughs> the movie cannot siempre viva. It has to end. <laughs> 
Death Becomes Her was released on July 31st, 1992 on almost 1,500 screens. It earned a little more than $12 million opening weekend, securing the number one spot at the box office. Other movies in the top 10 that weekend include Buffy the Vampire Slayer, A League of Their Own, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, and Sister Act. That year was my first time to see a movie by myself in the theater. I saw Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Nice. Mm-hmm. The film would stay in the box office top 10 until mid-September and would continue its wide release for 22 weeks. Ultimately, Death Becomes Her would gross $149 million against a budget of $55 million. And that's a worldwide total. Death Becomes Her has a 54% on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score of 61%. What? Yeah. The site's consensus reads, Han and Streep are just as fabulous as Death Becomes Her's innovative special effects. Zemeckis' satire, on the other hand, is as hollow as the world it mocks. I want to watch a Romero film. Yeah. Well, just for comparison's sake, our last deep dive movie, Diary of the Dead, is at 62% on Rotten Tomatoes. Fuck that. (laughs) Ruh. Ridiculous. That 1% difference is doing a lot of heavy lifting. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> the movie earned mostly mixed reviews upon its release. The Hollywood Reporter called the effects awesome, if occasionally too gruesome to enjoy. Pussy. But said, this type of darkness lights up the screen. Edward Guthman of the San Francisco Chronicles said the film was crude and tasteless, but irresistibly funny. Not gruesome. Jesus. I know. Both Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel gave Death Becomes Her a thumbs down, commenting that while the film had great special effects, it lacked any real substance or character depth. TV Guide said the end result is a film that tries to do too many things at once and does none of them quite right. I don't agree with that. I don't think it's trying to do too many things. I think it's just trying to do one thing. It did get some awards. And at the Academy Awards, it actually won for Best Effects, beating out Batman Returns and, from a previous deep dive, Alien 3. At the Golden Globes, it was nominated for Best Actress in a Comedy, Meryl Streep. And at the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for a Best Fantasy Film, Best Director, Best Actor for Bruce Willis, Best Actress for Meryl Streep, Best Writing, Best Music, and Best Makeup. Uh, But it won for Best Supporting Actress for Isabella Rossellini and Best Special Effects. I mean, she's so good. She was. Death Becomes Her has acquired a significant cult following, especially in the LGBT community. This following was outlined in an article in Vanity Fair called The Gloriously Queer Afterlife of Death Becomes Her. There have been Death Becomes Her-themed runways on RuPaul's Drag Race, and former contestant Jinx Monsoon credits the film as an inspiration to becoming a drag queen himself. She, along with Ben de la Creme and Peaches Christ, starred in a stage drag parody of the film called Drag Becomes Her. Nice. Mm -hmm. Well, as a matter of fact, Tom Campbell, who's an executive producer over on RuPaul's Drag Race, reflected and said, quote, They're fighting for beauty. They're against the system. They're also villains, but we understand their complexity. We root for the undead divas because they're trying to win a game that's rigged against them. And to borrow an apocryphal quote from Ginger Rogers, they sort of have to do it backwards and in high heels. Nice. What a good gay quote. Mm-hmm. Well, Meryl Streep literally has to do that backwards. In <laughs> I mean, aside from that legacy for the LGBTQ community, I mean, I feel like most people remember this for its special effects. Right? A lot of people do. I mean, outside of the obvious camp value, um, we've we've mentioned this movie on Alien 3. We've mentioned it on Jurassic Park and probably a number of others because it was kind of um, a point in time where CGI got to a place where it was kind of really proven out. Yeah. Uh, and like we've been mentioning, uh, it was a major advancement in computer-generated effects. And like the digital advancements pioneered in Death Becomes Her actually worked as something of a proving ground and were incorporated into Industrial Light and Magic's next project, which was, of course, 
Jurassic Park, uh, which was released by Universal only a year later. So the two films also shared cinematographer Dean Cundy and production designer Rick Carter. And we go into a lot of that, uh, I think, in our Jurassic Park. They also share a writer. Yeah. Yeah. With Cap. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was the first film where a uh, computer generated skin texture was used. So like in the shot where Madeline resets her neck after being after her head was smashed in by a shovel <laughs> um, by Helen. Uh, and then uh, creating sequences where Madeline's head is dislocated and facing the wrong way around involved a combination of like blue screen technology, like an animatronic model, like robot created by. Um, not by ILM, but Amalgamated Dynamics, and then prosthetic makeup effects on Meryl Streep to create the look of the, twist, of the twisted neck. And it kind of still holds up. There's a little bit of rubberiness with whatever texture they're using with the CG, but the makeup effects still hold up. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. <clears throat> Watching it last night together before the recording, I was you could notice some like spottiness or whatever. I mean, like I feel like if they made it today, it would look a little better, but only because we've had you know decades of advancement. And, and that sort of like effects. So, well, yeah. And this was kind of the first time I feel like it was a really, really big budget or like blockbuster type of things or high fantasy or sci-fi that would use a little bit of CG. Right. But this was like the first time it was used in a little bit more of a mainstream, like comedy or something like that, or a horror adjacent, you know, and then of course it exploded the very next year with Jurassic Park using this as a, as a proving ground with everything they learned. Uh, you know, for lighting and for textures and things like that for those dinosaurs. And I remember being blown away when I saw this movie in the theater. Not I, that Meryl Streep is a dinosaur. I, not, not at that time. Uh, <laughs> <ooh>. <laughs> but yeah, when I saw this as a kid in the theater, I mean, I was just like probably mouth agape at some of these things. Oh, yeah. The hole in, in Goldie Hawn. Like, I don't remember the, the, the head backwards thing mm-hmm. creeped me out. Like that, but like the hole in her stomach yeah. was so fucking perfect. And to this day, she sits through that. Like <laughs> she gets harpooned by Meryl Streep or whatever. It goes through her stomach hole and it hits the couch. And then she sits down the couch and the, and the, the handle of the broom or whatever the fuck it was goes through her stomach. It was fucking perfect. <laughs> yes. Oh, damn. <laughs> I like that part. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, our two divas, let's talk about this cast a little bit. Yes. My God. I mean, it's kind of a small cast, right? And I think that just about, well, really, literally everybody in it just does such an amazing comedic job. Yeah. Well, starting with, of course, our two leads, Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn. Well, really, there's three leads, right? Yes. Bruce Willis very much you know, earns his place here. And it's a very, very different role for him. Yeah. Way against type around yeah. that time. And he does perfectly. I, I would agree. I believe it. I mean, like we've seen Bruce Willis do some comedy before then. I mean, Moonlighting is kind of a dramedy TV show. Right. But I mean, he is just outright funny in this movie and delivers like one liners just as quick and witty as the two lead actresses, in my opinion. Well, you'd think with like leading action stars like that, you know, uh, which I, I don't think was his beginning of his career, right? He kind of got picked for Die Hard against type, mm-hmm. and that just became the rest of his career for the most part. Right. So this is – that has to be st- stated, but, you know, he seems fairly fearless here. Like, he is not worried about maintaining a masculine machismo uh, here at all. Well, no, but I mean, because his entire – all the makeup on Bruce Willis is designed to make him look – older than what he is i feel or at the very least like supremely run down for his age right he looks like an older alcoholic man and the stereotype in the way that we would say it you know kind of crassly and derogatorily today would be that he's a cuck yes that's true he's He's the cuck character right yeah 
And so, but I mean, the cast goes on, right? We've got Isabella Rossellini, which I always love to see. She sounds exactly like her fucking mother. I mean, her in this movie. Yes. Her in this movie. And I mean, I get that. I don't hear it as much as you do, but I mean, she does. Same accent and same like cadence of the way she speaks. She in this movie is fantastic. I think she's my favorite character. I think she does the best performance out of all of the actors in this movie. Like there's just not a down note at all. I think she's perfect. Yeah. I feel like not at least nominating her for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress is a complete misstep by the Academy. And I will hold that for the rest of my life. She's just amazing. Yeah, I'm not quite there. I, th- I feel like she's iconic, you know, and she did every scene well, but she's almost like not in the movie enough to justify it. I mean, I feel like she's in this movie longer than some people have actually won the Best Supporting Actress Award. I mean, like I Judy Dench for sure was only in uh, like Shakespeare in Love for seconds a couple minutes you know and like she's she plays a pivotal role in this was that really the equivalent of like anthony hopkins in silence of the lambs yeah but he won best actor too so i he think was, he was only in it for like nine minutes yeah, or something like that or something minutes. ridiculous you know what yeah, I mean? and i think she's in this for, for maybe like eight yeah i mean it's it's really quick but i feel like she like commands the screen the entire time she's captivating to look at and listen to and she just holds on to that character so so well not that the rest of the actors don't i feel like meryl streep Who's always good when she's in movies. I mean, she's Meryl fucking Streep, for God's sakes. But I feel like in this movie, she's particularly good. We've seen her do comedy before. It's very different for her, too. Almost everyone in here is is kind of against type, you know, except for maybe Goldie Hawn, who's, who's kind of a lot more known for the dramedy. And I, but I feel like for someone like Goldie Hawn, who has a lot of experience doing comedy, whereas Meryl Streep and Bruce Willis may not, I feel like those two kind of outshine her in the in the, the comedy aspects of their roles. Meryl Streep is a delight in this fucking movie. Her timing is just so good. Her facial expressions in this movie are fantastic. You know what I mean? Like she, she also plays her character really, really well. well. She listens very well. She yeah. reacts very well. It's always fun to see her face. And she's just a good actress. You know, I mean, like she's, she's gifted. So I, I feel like she can do anything. She's really a safe place for the camera, right? Like if you're editing, you can always be like, okay, well we need to like, a, let's put more, put it on Meryl again. You know what I mean? Because she's always doing something. Have you seen that fucking meme? There's like a cat sitting in one of those cash chairs and it says Meryl Streep behind the cat and the caption says, my God, she's good. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, I mean, that's just her. I mean, she's just a phenomenal actress. I mean, and sadly, I mean, like this could be the only time that we get to talk about Meryl Streep on the podcast because she has not done a whole lot of genre work. Well, I'm sure we'll we'll go into like Deer Hunter maybe. Yeah, I mean, there are some things that are like horror adjacent, you know, from a dramatic standpoint, but like this is her most horror adjacent movie yeah so i would say and maybe even goalie hans yeah i mean it's true maybe not bruce willis i don't he does a lot of like he's done some sci-fi and stuff but yeah i'm sure that we could get to like the fifth element of it all you know at some point yeah this is more horror jason than that yeah Um, so isabella rosani i don't know uh i I do want to say like i loved seeing Sidney pollock in here i always love seeing him yeah uh, he's actually uncredited but he played the er doctor that um bruce willis takes meryl streep to when he's (laughs) he's uncredited (laughs) Yeah, he's uncredited. I mean, I feel like people notice him when they see him in movies. Yeah. So, yeah. of course, there was also a cameo for Fabio as one of Liesl's bodyguards. It's like the second time we've talked about Fabio randomly in a movie. Wasn't he? <laughs> he pops he, up. He pops up in weird places. He was in fucking Exorcist 3, and now he's <laughs> Death Becomes Her. So I'm like, clearly he had cameos all through the 90s. Yeah, apparently. So do you want to talk about the, uh, the background a little bit? Yeah, we'd love to. So the theatrical version of Death Becomes Her... 
actually omitted or shortened a lot of its scenes and fe- uh, that were actually featured in the film's rough cut. In fact, if you watch the classic trailer, uh, there are a lot of scenes in it that aren't actually featured in the movie. I noticed that when I watched the trailer this morning, I was like, what in the fuck are these scenes? Like, cause I know this movie almost inside and out. Yeah. So in order to, uh, basically Robert Zemeckis decided that it was needed to accelerate the pacing of the movie. So he like slash and burned, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, eliminated extraneous jokes that didn't really move the plot forward. And most dramatically, the original ending was entirely redone after test audiences reacted negatively to it. What was the original ending? I was like, this is the ending you chose? (laughs) Now an ending? (laughs) (laughs) So that ending featured Ernest after he's uh, fled Liesl's party, meeting a bartender who was played by Tracy fucking Ullman. Oh. Yeah. Who helps him fake his own death to evade Madeline and Helen. And there's a moment in the trailer where like, he's dead, everyone's dead. And that must be that. Okay. So the two women encounter Ernest and the bartender 27 years later, living happily as a retired couple while Madeline and Helen give no sign that they're enjoying their eternal existence. And uh, so Zemeckis thought the ending was too unhappy, um, too morose and opted for the darker ending featured in the final cut. Uh, although it's darkly funny because they, you know, fall into pieces or whatever. Yeah. But Ullman was one of five actors with speaking roles in the film that were eliminated in the editing process. Oh my God. Well-known yeah. actors. I don't know. Jesus. Uh, honestly, the, the cast is double or triple what we mentioned and all of them have like links to in IMDb and, and Wikipedia, right? They're not just one time mm-hmm. one shots. Well, Tracy um, Ullman's no slouch. A lot of players. Point. Tracy Ullman is certainly no slouch. Certainly not in the comedy world. And I believe Tracy Ullman and Meryl Streep, I don't know if they met on this film, maybe a previous film, but they're pretty close friends in real life. My God, I would love to go to lunch with them. (laughs) I mean, like, wouldn't you? God. So other scenes that were eliminated included one in which Madeline talks to her agent, played by Jonathan Silverman. And one in which Ernest removes a frozen Madeline from the kitchen freezer he had stored her in. And none of the scenes have ever been released publicly, not even on DVDs or extra extra cut scenes or anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the sequences, obviously, like we said, can still be viewed in the original theatrical trailer, at least in part. I mean, and watching that trailer today, I'm kind of glad some of those scenes were cut. Because when he's taking her out of the freezer and what does he say? Like, she's like, she's like, I feel how sweaty. And and he's like, I think you're here to frosting. I'm like, chirp, chirp. I mean, that's not funny because there's some amazing moments and like fucking one liners in this movie that I feel people have committed to memory. At least I certainly have. Well, the trailer had a choice. When you do movies like this, you could really make a trailer that's more horror-y mm-hmm. or you can make a trailer that's more comedy. And that's they really leaned hard into the comedy, including using those extraneous jokes that aren't in the final cut. And the only thing they used to lean hard into the horror was the Tales from the Crypt theme in the background. Well, that's going to come up again, too. Oh, shit. Okay. Oh, yeah. But first... Rather than re- like re-synopsizing, let's talk about some of our favorite moments because this is just one of those movies that is so close to the heart. We view with a nostalgia lens, but it's also so fucking campy and LGBT yeah. friendly uh, as far as like, I don't know, camp accessibility or something. I don't know what makes it friendly. <laughs> yes. Uh, that we just have a lot of like one-liners and quotes and and moments that we love, starting with that opening number. I see me. <laughs> I wish I knew all the fucking lyrics. I just know some of those random moments where they're like, we see you, you mean me. At one point they call her a hussy. <laughs> yeah. And it's actually based off of like, it's not called Songbird, but it's called something else, but it's by Tennessee Williams. Yeah. It's about Bird of Youth or something like yes. that. Yeah. And it's, it's about the aging actress. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah, it's interesting <laughs> that they did that. Uh, but one thing I love about that whole sequence is like, this is a test for um, Helen 
to test Ernest because she's lost boyfriends before. And so it's like the ultimate test before she gets married. Can he overcome the attraction to Madeline? And of course, he's like, you do not ever have to worry about my attraction. And then it just hard cuts to their wedding and it's fucking perfect. (laughs) And she's at the wedding. I love comedic editing. Yes. I love it. (laughs) My God. She's like at the end, too, because they really play up on that. Her ringing the the hanky in her hand. Right. With the blood coming. Yeah. Because she walks down the stairs of that church and she's ringing it so hard. There's blood coming out of her hands. So and then of course after that insta we- insta wedding we switch to uh, Helen Seven years later yeah and she's like in that fat suit <laughs> looks good yeah I mean it it looks like good makeup and she's just eating frosting out of a can with her fingers when I first saw that I thought it was mayonnaise <laughs> <laughs> I mean which also sounds delicious to me I'm not gonna lie like even more darkly comedic if I were in that situation I'd be eating both of those things with my fingers <laughs> probably and then rewatching someone dying on TV like she did yeah and they, they have the break in and then she's committed. And I love the group therapy where they're like, finally, like, what do you want to talk about today? I would like to talk about Madeline Ashton. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is so sick of hearing it. They all start screaming. That fucking shrink, too. I just love it. She's screaming at her. <laughs> you will have to eliminate every. What did you say? <laughs> it's like a light bulb moment. <laughs> Uh, meanwhile, Meryl Streep is worried about her youth and goes to um, the spa. And I, it's such a bit scene, and it's not really mm-hmm. worthy of calling up. But like, I love that I, whoever that actor is that played Mr. Chagall or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Twitchy Eye. Yeah, he's so like uh, <laughs> such a scene still. How do you seal a scene with Meryl Streep? And he did it because he was just like doing the twitchy eye thing, and he made it look so naturalistic and weird. I'm not so sure that I had noticed that fully, right? Anytime that I've seen this movie, but for some reason last night, and maybe, maybe it was a combination of the gummy. I have no idea. But every time his eye was stretching, he went to touch it to stop it. It was cracking my shit up. <laughs> so. He was stressed out talking about it, even though we see him later amongst the immortals. So right. I don't even know if he was supposed to be because he doesn't look like it. Well, I think he was probably reaching the end of his 10 years and maybe some things have happened to him. And that's just one of the side effects. You know what I mean? Like he must be immortal and is falling apart in some way. I, I don't know, but he didn't look more. He didn't look like he'd been de de-aged you know what i mean one of my favorite moments in this movie happens sort of like right after that after they go to the launch party for her book right yeah. and meryl streep is driving in the rain and she looks up in the rearview mirror and her makeup has like smeared down her <laughs> face and she slams on the brakes and goes ah! just, like, and all the traffic has to go around her <laughs> i feel like when i was a kid i laughed at that moment the hardest out of anything in this movie i just it makes me laugh so much when meryl streep does that well, speaking of which, of course, she gets to where she's going, which uh-huh. she finds that business card when she slams on the brakes and stops in the middle of traffic because her makeup's smeared and she sees some wrinkles. Uh, but she gets to she goes to the castle and uh, gets Liesl's sales pitch. I love it. I mean, this the is, whole sequence is iconic. Yeah. I mean, all of it. And this is what I when I talk about Isabella Rossellini's performance, I mean, honestly, like this is this is the part right here. She comes in later on in the movie, but yeah. like this is fantastic. Well, she's only wearing that like necklace. Right. Right. And then like a sarong around her waist. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And she just looks iconic. And uh, they just it was perfect, perfect casting. I can't imagine anyone else. What she say to that guy who's sitting on the couch? She's like, make some room for my friend. But keep your ass handy. <laughs> and then she winks at Meryl. <laughs> the slowest She gets wink. such good lines in this. Yes. You know, and you do the, the Latin so well. Siempre viva. Live forever. <laughs> <laughs> now a warning. Now a warning. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, love it. This is so good. 
Yeah, and I, I love her reference to um, <laughs> Greta Garbo, uh, Greta Garbo mm-hmm. where where she's like, "Who else?" You know, she she alluded to those celebrities or whatever, and she and then she says, "The I want to be alone." <gasps> she was like, <laughs> which is of course Greta Garbo, like I think in one of her last roles, right? Yeah. Uh, what is that movie? It's like a, was it the pirate one or is it like no? It's another one. I, I can't remember. It's a, it's a woman's name, but I mean, I digress. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, she's she's talking about how she would have to disappear from life, right? You can fake your own death, you know, or whatever. And she's like, or as one of my clients simply said, "I want to be alone." <gasps> <laughs> and of course, we know that's Greta. Yeah. Uh, for any of you that are aware of like classic you know, cinema from like forties. But, um, and she's alluding that there's other people there. Obviously later on, we see Elvis, Elvis Presley, James Dean, um, that photographer guy, artist or whatever. Andy Warhol's there, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Marilyn Monroe. There was a couple others that are listed in the the Wikipedia if you're interested. I mean, if I were making this movie, I would have just done like line by line, name by name, like Madonna's Vogue or something. and just had them in there. I mean, it's just because that's extra gay. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> so yeah then we get to see Meryl's transformation which is awesome it still looks really good her ass is ballooning up and her boobs are getting firm and her skin literally like they made her I don't know really how they I guess they put like a slight old age makeup on her before and then or they just did actual good makeup on her yeah. afterwards I'm not sure I mean it seems not it, quite interview the vampire Claudia level but I mean no. like you know but that came after, right? Yeah. So like yeah. three years after. But yeah, it seems like it like lightens and de-ages like magically, you know, through the mirror. And it's it really is an impressive like special effects moment. And it's super funny from like a physical comedy standpoint, right? Yeah. And then Meryl's like, I'm a girl. <laughs> so, after that, you know, while while, it's, while all of that's going on, like Helen has visited Ernest and they're plotting to kill Madeline. Yeah, and the thing I like about this is the montage. She has a whole plan of how to do it. It's oddly specific. She's obviously been planning this for years, as we know. Probably as she was, like, scooping out icing with her fingers from that jar (laughs) and fantasizing about it. But it's really oddly specific, and it's hilarious. It's kind of like... It's almost Looney Tunes. The yes, way they do it, and they're like, they're like, we're gonna make it look like she's had a little bit too much to drink, and they fill up the entire passenger seat, <laughs> like with like it, it's just dumped with like I don't know something like thirty bottles. Of yeah, they're just dousing liquor all through that convertible, right? I love it in montages where there's someone's narrating the action, right, and then someone else in the montage says exactly what they said yes. right after the narration. He was like, "There's some woman driving dangerously close to the edge," like right after she says it in the narration. It just makes me laugh. And then. And uh, it, it kind of reminds me of like Emperor's New Groove where Yzma's like, and then we'll put him in a box and put a box in a box and, <laughs> and then we'll hit him over the head or something. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just a classic style of filmmaking. It's cartoon villainy. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's just, uh, it's really fun. Uh, but then she leaves, you know, so that he can like kind of prepare to do what they're going to do. But meanwhile, Meryl comes home with her new body. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the whole scene where they get into it and she's basically calling him a cuck. Yeah. And he's had enough. He's flaccid. Uh, Goldie, Blast, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Goldie has really wound him up, right? Helen um, has really wound him up right. because saying like he's a victim and he, she's sucking the life out of him and he's miserable and blah, blah, blah. So he's kind of primed. And so she's trips down the stairs and instead of helping her, he kind of taps her. <laughs> so she falls and breaks her neck. Her entire head is backwards. 
which is of course one of the most iconic moments of CG in the film. And Down what seems prosthetics. to be an endless flight of stairs. An endless flight, yeah. <laughs> that staircase is a very long staircase, right? right? But the <laughs> but the shot of it, I felt like went on for like I don't know five or ten seconds too long for comedic effect or something. Because yeah. like, how many stairs are those? <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's just right a little bit. I mean, it's like it's like a Meet Joe Black kind of death mixed with like you know Michelle getting hit by that long ass limousine and Romeo and Michelle. I mean, like. <laughs> Those things are just funny when they extend it for comedic value. Well, one of the like the most cringe moments of the whole movie for me uh, is when she lands the first time on her head because oh. it, it's the full frontal of her landing on her head. Her head cracks and you see her face and everything, and it goes backwards, and it's just like oh yeah. I know. I know you don't like it when bones break, or at least they make that sound. Right? Well, it's you that don't like that. Well, you're yeah, the one that doesn't like the bones breaking or being able to see them through. Like seeing like the vertebrae the coming out of her, yeah. her oh, protruding God. almost through the skin or whatever after that is pretty gross, too. It just makes me wince. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uncomfortable, but it's still that whole sequence, um, really. And so the, the whole movie right now has really excellent pacing. It's moving really, really quickly. It's hilariously funny. And it continues that way for a little bit. Um, you know, she gets back up, surprisingly, while he's on the phone with with uh, Helen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Madeline comes over and you pushed me down the stairs. Honest. <laughs> <laughs> my ass. I can see my ass. <laughs> uh, the doctor's visit's fun. Yeah. You know, when he takes her to the hospital to try and see what's wrong with her because he feels guilty. And, and she's kind of whimpery and you know they're not at each other's throats anymore because something else is happening you know and so they're bending her hand all the way back to her arm <laughs> with, like checking her heartbeat Sunny <laughs> Pollock later is seen having a heart attack in one, of, <laughs> in one of the hospital rooms she wakes up but she passes out because she, she realizes she's dead and then she wakes up in the morgue I don't know how I remember oh, so many morgue. lines from this movie I mean that's one like Ernest <laughs> I'm in the morgue. <laughs> Why am I in the morgue? <laughs> Where he's pushing her her wrist back, and she's got that fucking thermometer in her mouth, and she's like, "It doesn't hurt." <laughs> like, they just stand out in my brain so much. I can even say them with the same kind of inflection. It's the delivery. Yeah, it's very specific. I must have seen this movie more times than I remember. <laughs> uh, and then you know we get the showdown, right? Everyone comes back to the house, and it's Goldie versus Meryl, Hell versus Mad. That's right, the epic shovel cat fight. I love that. Hell, mad. Hell. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, that's iconic. You know, she she shoots her with a shotgun. We get the whole harpooning through the stomach thing. We've Mm -hmm. talked about this a little bit already. Uh, She shovels her head into her neck. She already had the neck problems. And so that's happening, you know. And then they become friends. And then they become friends. And that's what kicks off the downhill slide for this movie. Because that's really the engine of this movie is the confrontation and the jealousy and the rage and the revenge and all of that between these two ladies, right? It's kind of just trying to do two things, right? It's trying to talk about youth and beauty and blah, blah, blah. But it's also trying to talk about this, uh, this relationship, right? Based on all of this bad history and, and, and everything else with some subtleties, which we'll get into, but that's what I think kind of went wrong here. If anything went wrong, right? Cause I still view this as a classic, a cult classic at the very least, and um, I still enjoy the hell of it. It's endlessly rewatchable. Yes. Um, I mean, I completely agree. But I, I agree with that. But it that loses as well. its steam. It does. I mean, I think that's my biggest problem with this movie is because, like, the cattiness 
and the like the the frenemy type relationship between the two women is really a really good driving force in this oh yeah you know and like having them make up super quickly i think it's a good moment for them to like realize the reason why they're so mad at each other you know but I kind of wish that even past that moment, they would have bickered a little bit more throughout the rest of it. You can still head toward the ending of the movie. You can tell they're a little fake. Yeah. You tell her, yeah. I mean, you can. You're right. But they I, both have a similar need and they have they have earnest in common. Exactly. And they kind of get over it, but it's too quick. It is. It's a, it's a really fast wrap up. It's you know? shockingly abrupt how quickly they become friends again after that. And it's just silly at the very least we get to see a little bit more deliciousness from isabella rossellini you know where she's in the pool and getting out but that whole castle sequence i'm just like yeah it feels just rappy uppy you know like nothing's really going to happen you know um and while it's neat to see those celebrities that are there to have to have taken the potion i mean like it feels it feels like a sight gag only and at this point dated the only thing left outside when that engine sputters out of of that all of that history. The only thing left, if, if we're putting all of that aside, because mm-hmm. we're forced to, because the two leads are. Yep. The only thing left is the shallowness of these two characters. Mm-hmm. Which I feel is kind of like the message to this movie, if there is one, really. So, Well, the focus has nowhere else to turn at that point, right? Because there's you lose interest when all there is is just the shallow needs of these people. That's true. For the rest of time. That's boring. Okay. And so there's nowhere for the audience to turn but earnest. A character that was never really meant to be in the limelight here, right? No. Although I feel like if you're talking about character arcs, right? Like his is the... That's what's wrong with the castle thing. It stops following them for the first time in the movie and it follows him. That's right. We're not that interested in his character, really. He's there to serve a point or whatever. And and he's just the the crux between two characters. He's a a multi-device tool. Yes. (laughs) Essentially. True. Yeah. It makes me start thinking about like, what is this movie about? Obviously, youth, beauty, and aging. Yes, um, definitely. The Hollywood grind, you know. Uh, I also had you watch Sunset Boulevard. Oh my gosh, for the first time. And these movies have a lot in common. Yeah, you know, I was surprised ways. at the pairing. You yeah, know what I mean, because it wasn't mean, intentional. Yeah, it wasn't. Uh, jealousy and grudges, female relationships, female agency. Definitely. Right? I do see some of that. You're kind of on Meryl's side a little bit. You're also on uh, Goldie's side a little bit. You know, uh, certainly at the beginning, right? Definitely. But then you see them both kind of just going too far and you just, they're not likable characters by the end, which is fine. You know, and there's also something to say about codependence, mm-hmm. right? And getting out of toxic relationships and and things like that with the, with the husband, with both those women, really. And then uh, finally, the, the one kind of message I really liked was at the very end at Ernest's funeral, which kind of said, like, life starts at 50. Which makes me feel really good. Yeah, me too. As I'm inching toward 50, you know? I mean, all these things are, are really what the movie is about. You're right. And, I mean, I feel like when we're talking about female relationships and female agency, I feel, as you said, I mean, we sort of, like, side with Meryl, I feel, a lot more in this movie. Only because she has more screen time than Goldie Hawn. She's more interesting. Yeah. Uh, but you're kind of rooting for Goldie Hawn at least the first half. And then you, they're kind of even. Like, that's kind of an interesting thing to me because she is the one that is really wronged here but the camera doesn't linger on that the story doesn't linger on no that. it doesn't it turns it into comedy i mean yeah. i kind of feel like like helen taking the potion makes no sense to me she wasn't very vain you know what i mean and she she didn't want to be an actress she wanted to be a writer you know what i mean which is not exactly she a glamorous job literally just to hurt madeline and so when you think about it in the long run her her revenge plot was detailed organized and took years to do and yeah. i appreciate that when she got to enjoy a perfect body for seven years meryl got it for one night 
<laughs> oh my god, that is still even still their friend. She's getting her revenge. I love it. Yeah, I do. And I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously at its core, it's about aging and and things like that, and especially in in the Hollywood system, like you said. But um, I don't know. I, I feel like today would we see a movie like this made today about all these things i'm sure in some form like looking back all the way back at sunset boulevard some of the things that were said in that movie inform this one uh i think the, he yells at norma desmond in that and says why do you want to be so much younger it's not a tragedy to be 50 it's only a tragedy if you're trying to be 25 it's true you know i mean i feel like you and i have conversations about celebrities like aging gracefully or not you know what I mean? Like everyone makes a choice at some point in their career, you yeah. know? And I mean, while that's a shallow conversation to have, like these people are making the choices and putting themselves out there. You know what I mean? Yeah, so there's probably a sea of gray area there. Yeah. You know? Like um, from Michael Jackson to, you know, little snippet of Botox. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll take some Botox, so. <laughs> but I don't need it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I feel like this movie has a place in the nineties and I, I'm not quite sure that it, if it were made today, it would be the same, you know, aside from better effects maybe, but I still think the effects in this movie are, are good. I feel like if it was done, it would be maybe by that director that did uh, ready or not would be good. Oh yeah. And it would go, it would veer a little bit less goofy, wacky Looney Tunes and more into a little bit more of the darker or adjacency, but still have that dark comedy layer, you know, and just like swerve it a little bit over to that direction for a modern audience. And then, you know, keep that, you know, relationship. I would have loved to see them try and, and come at each other like fucking Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner <laughs> for eternity or something Hell and yeah. kind of elude that they're still going at each other. Like throats. fucking dropping anvils and shit on each other. I'm here versus, for that. Yeah. Versus have it like a really truncated ending, you know, that means that is almost meaningless. I feel like Zemeckis was sort of marching toward this movie, right? Because I mean, he did like Back to the Future, the trilogy, right? Yeah. And then he, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is is dark, much darker than that, you know, but still not as dark as Death Becomes Her. And then eventually he would go full on Hitchcock and do, you know, What Lies Beneath. Yeah, he's a very eclectic yes. director, which I, I've always loved Robert Zemeckis. He also did Polar Express, I think. Yeah. Or Beowulf or one of those. And he did, you know, episodes of Tales from the Crypt. I mean, he, he has his finger sort of on the line between like genre and darkness. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I feel like, you know, he, he enjoys making movies in that space, you know, and you can tell from this. I also wish that it would have like edged a little bit more into the horrific side. Sure. But that's just me. So. Well, I have some fun facts. Finally. I, yeah. I, I just want, there's a lot. Good. Because we have been missing them for the last two deep dives. <laughs> and uh, actually the first one has something to do with Tales from the Crypt. So this was actually originally planned to be a sequel to the Tales from the Crypt movie from uh, 1972 because really? Robert Zemeckis grew up with Tales from the Crypt and, and fucking loved it. And uh, it was, it was one of his favorite Halloween classics. Uh, when he was when he was younger, and he actually ended up producing the TV show from in the '90s, at the same time as directing this movie, he was mm-hmm. an executive producer all that time. Like you said, he directed some. Yep. So uh, I mean, in fact, the music in the classical trailer uh, features the the theme music from Tales from the Crypt, as, as we stated. It's an iconic theme. 
Yeah. So it has a lot to do with Tales from the Crypt. I love that, actually. I really miss Tales from the Crypt. I don't know why it's on HBO Maybe Max. that's what we needed, was a bookend with the, with the fucking Crypt Keeper. I mean, honestly, it could have been. Right I mean, after they fall to pieces, they'd be like, oh, they really fell to pieces. <laughs> it would have made it a little bit more of a morality tale if they would have had someone doing that. You know? Yeah. Who would they cast as the, the Crypt Keeper? I think it should be played by Cindy McCain. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I think we've forgiven her for her Republican ways at this point, though. So we had to be nicer to her. Yeah, they've definitely moved like, to the middle. She still looks like the Crypt Keeper, though. Especially after her husband's death. So this, that might be an inappropriate joke, but she still looks like the Crypt Keeper. Yes. <laughs> she looks better now than she did in 2008 for some reason. Work. Yeah, work. Uh, maybe she uh, took that vial. Oh my God. Anyway. Siempre viva, Cindy. <laughs> <laughs> so the three main characters' names are play on words. As we know, Madeline, Ernest, and Helen can be shortened to Mad, Earn, and Hell, or Matter and Hell. Oh, God. <laughs> Grown. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if that's fun or just tedious. <laughs> <laughs> She's Mad and Hell. <laughs> so in an opening scene, Meryl Streep's character is starring in the musical version of Sweet Bird of Youth. That's the name of it. Okay, yeah. from 1962. The play by Tennessee Williams about an aging actress who pines for her lost youth. I love Tennessee Williams. Everything he's written is gold. Also, Kevin Klein was the first choice to play Dr. Ernest Menville, but fell out of the project after a pay dispute with the studio. Jeff Bridges and Nick Nolte were also both considered before Bruce Willis ultimately got the part. I can't see Nick Nolte. I can see Jeff Bridges. I can see Jeff Bridges. I can see Kevin Klein. Yeah. Although I feel like... I feel like Jeff Bridges would have been fun. Yes. But Bruce Willis in this movie. He's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, I just can't. I couldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't. During filming, director Robert Zemeckis would say, hold on to your butts. The screenwriter David Kep and frequent Zemeckis collaborator wrote this as a catchphrase for Samuel L. Jackson in Jurassic Park. Hold on to your butts. So that's where that comes from. <laughs> Super original, David Kep. Mm-hmm. But remember, you'll have to pair this with our Jurassic Park deep dive, which is, I think, three hours long. It's like wine and It's like longer together. than the movie. Oh, my God, it is. I know. At one point, Liesel asks Madeline how old she thinks she is. Madeline answers 38, and Liesel gives her that dirty look. Well, <laughs> Isabella Rosalina was 39 at the time of the filming. <laughs> a little too close to her age. She does not look 39. She there. does not. She looks much younger than that. So every time every time I watch this movie and she says that, I'm like, I would not have guessed that age. She'd yeah. be rude. <laughs> I am 71 years old. <gasps> <laughs> no. So a pneumatic bra was built to create the effect where Meryl Streep's breasts become higher and firmer after drinking the potion, but the effect didn't look realistic enough. So in order to get the shot, Streep's dresser stood behind her out of sight of the camera and pushed her boobs into that position. (laughs) I fucking love this. (laughs) I like that sound they make too. It's like... (laughs) (laughs) Like fucking hilarious so the production had a fair number of mishaps for example in the scene where helen and madeline are battling with shovels streep accidentally cut goldie Hawn's <gasps> face leaving a faint scar oh shit so streep admitted that she disliked working uh, on a project that focused so heavily on special effects and vowed never to work on another film with heavy special effects again saying my first my last my only I think it's tedious. Whatever concentration you can apply to that kind of comedy is just shredded. You stand there like a piece of machinery. They should get machinery to do it. I loved how it turned out, but it's not fun to act to a lampstand. Pretend this is Goldie right here. Oh, no, I'm sorry, Bob. She went off the mark by five centimeters and now her head won't match her neck. It was like being at the dentist office. 
I mean, I get it, Meryl. And I don't, I'm trying, I'm racking my brain now. We are reading that quote, trying to think of if she's done anything else that is that effects heavy. And the only thing I can come up with is the very end of don't look up. Maybe because it was her face on a, on a body double. Right. So, I mean, I, but that's just walking on a blue screen. I know. So it's not nothing. She doesn't make movies like that. No. So, I mean, must've been a pretty bad experience. Plus she injured somebody. (laughs) (laughs) How bad would you feel if you're like raped a shovel across Goldie Pond's face? Oh my God. I would, why are they using real shovels? Meryl, if you need to stop Daniel day Lewis in this fight scene. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't have to be that real. (laughs) Okay. So in one of the early drafts of the script, Liesl's main desire was to actually preserve the world's greatest minds and creative talents for her own interests. Such figures that she enticed to take on the potion would have been William Shakespeare, Abraham Lincoln, Max Factor. However, like Ernest, they all came to the same conclusion that taking the potion in order to have eternal life in a physical, fragile world is wrong. In retaliation and to keep her secret, Lisa ends up killing them. So the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and all that stuff. This would explain why in the theatrical film, Lisa wanted to capture and possibly kill Ernest after he rejected taking the potion. It also, to me, explains her interest in even having him to begin with, because I feel like these people are very curated. Yes. Right. And so she wanted to preserve his talent. That's the first thing she says to him is that Mm -hmm. his, his reputation precedes him as far as his, his talent, not only for plastic surgery and all of that, but his work on these dead bodies, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're walking around and she's seen them. And she'll need it eventually, too. Because I was like, I expect every time I watch this movie, my knee jerk is to expect her to say, no, who is this guy? He's Mm -hmm. a pot. He's a no one. No, not to her. Nope. Right. And so that makes a little bit more sense. I really enjoy the idea of this. And I feel like if they were going to make a prequel or something, this is what I'd like to see. I also would. I wish that she were much older than 71 years old. Like she's been peddling. That was the original. Yeah. The original was thousands of years. She's going to have like Cleopatra and stuff. I mean, like that makes that makes the movie a thousand times better for me. Yeah. I also want to see where this person's coming from. Like if there's a giant fucking cauldron with like. I don't know, child sacrifices or some shit down below. I don't know. I mean, this is the movie we want to see, Hollywood. I feel like that place has a big sex dungeon <laughs> below that mansion or something. I mean, I hope so. That's what I want below my mansion. Oh, the chairs in this house are sex slings. <laughs> what is that noise? My slang? <laughs> so my last one. Not as fun. In December 2017, Kristen Chenoweth was announced to be starring in a Broadway musical adaption of Death Becomes Her. Well, that's fun. I mean, if the movie could not get any fucking gayer, Kristen Chenoweth in a musical version, mm-hmm. that's pretty queer. I love it. I just read that Dolly Parton, if she ever has a, a, a movie done about her, she wants Kristen Chenoweth to play her. And Kristen Chenoweth wants to do that. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Kristen Chenoweth also wants to make a musical version of Tammy Faye's life and play that too. So God bless Kristen Chenoweth, really. She's the gay man in all of us. Well, those are fun. Finally, my God, I never want to go through an entire month with no fun facts again. <sighs> I had to make up for it. Thank God. Well, we have some questions to ask about Death Becomes Her, like we do about every movie we deep dive into. And we're going to start with Chris. Would you drink the potion? Yes. Yeah, me too. I want to go in front of a mirror and see all my fat disappear. I know. And all my wrinkles disappear. My hair grow back. And I'll just turn around and say. I have so much more to gain than Meryl. I'm a girl. (laughs) But seriously, would you consider Death Becomes Her to be a horror movie? Uh, certainly horror adjacent. Yeah, I mean, it's got all the elements. Mm-hmm. It's dark. Yeah, right. It's, I mean, it's fantasy oriented. There's some supernatural aspects to it. Yeah. The only thing is that is tone. You know, and there's yeah. still some horror moments. You know, even though the overall tone is, you know, dark comedy Looney Tunes. 
But I mean, I would still, I mean, it's, it's adjacent to horror for sure. It yeah. belongs in that conversation. Were you scared while watching Death Becomes Her? I think there's a few moments where uh, you get uncomfortable, like watching like the neck break and, yeah, <laughs> and all that stuff. Gross. You know, it's pretty shocking to see someone shot in the stomach and then get back up with a hole in it. Like a lot of this is like first time watches and, and seeing those effects for the first time. But no, it's not a scary movie at, at all. I don't think they're trying to be. No. I forgot that line too. It's like, Ernest, look at me. I'm, I'm soaking, soaking wet. wet. And there's something terribly wrong with your blouse. <laughs> Uh, all right. So out of five stars, what would you rate Death Becomes Her? I gave it four stars. I also gave it four stars. Um, apparently, when I was rating it on Letterboxd last night, it showed me my previous rating because I guess I had watched this a couple years ago and I gave it three stars on that viewing. So hmm. I enjoyed it more this time around. Glad it's warmed up to you. Yeah. I don't even know why in the world I would give it three stars. Maybe it's in a bad mood. That Every few years I like to watch it. You know, it's like yeah. I said, it's endlessly rewatchable. You can't watch it month to month, you know, but you know, every couple of years I love to pick it up. It's kind of like an old friend. It's just always a good time. I mean, obviously I've I seen always it laugh. Yeah. So good. Good movie. Four stars is, I think is a perfect rating. Yeah. So finally, who's the hottest guy in death becomes her. You know, it's got to be her um, her booty call. Mm-hmm. It's got to be the guy. Not even the like some of the guys that, that are at the the big castle or whatever with Isabella Rosalini are, are pretty yeah. hot. But they're like they're it's like romance airport novel cover guys. Yeah, they're like, you know, like Fabio, hot. and I'm just like not really into that. But there was like a little bit more streamlinedness into the to, into the guy she was having an affair with, the pool boy or whatever. Yeah, the hell he was super he was. cute. I mean, I, this is also my choice. I mean, he, he had pretty hair. He was cute. He had his shirt off the entire time he was on screen. What's not to love? What's I her mean? name? Michael Catalyst? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stop in the middle of the highway because of you. Yeah. Well, he literally brought that, that plot forward because his rejection made her feel old. He's like, you should date someone your own age. And yeah. she's just like devastated. He's like, I'm doing you a favor here. <laughs> God, rude. <laughs> no, Meryl is. Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Death Becomes Her. Like always, we want to know what you all think about this movie and our conversation. Find us on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at 972-666-7733. Sempre vivo. Live forever. Ernest Mouth. You fucked me down the stairs. What? <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> Look at me. I'm soaking wet. <laughs> Gross. Remember <laughs> where you parked the car? <laughs> Guys, we got some new reviews this month to be read on Shooting the Flames, but we'd like some more. Not that we're sounding greedy or anything, but head over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Leave us a five-star review and a snippet of why you like us, and we'll read it on Shooting the Flames. Join us next week for Drop Dead Gorgeous. You won't want to miss this one, and if you haven't seen it, drop everything. Gorgeous. And watch that movie. It's on Hulu. Fuck yeah, guys. Go watch it. It's going to be a really fun conversation. Meanwhile, over on the Patreon, we are doing... The Knights of Badassdom, which is also an underrated, underseen, dark comedy horror film about nerds. And I think you guys will like it. I haven't seen it yet. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, yeah. So head on over to Patreon and, uh, you know, check that out. That's right, guys. Near the end of the month. Well, Chris, 
I think it's time to go off and look real hard for that fucking potion because I'm starting to feel my age. Oh, God. And then maybe we'll have eternal sweet Sweet dreams. dreams. My ass. I can see my my ass. ass. (laughs) 